0: Greetings, everybody. This is David. I wanted to take a moment before the show starts and give you an update. Over the last few episodes, you've heard me talk about a documentary for the PBS station here in Chicago. I've been deeply involved with the project, playing several different roles, writer, narrator, executive producer. On April 3rd, the documentary premiered on TV here in Chicago, and it's now available on the web as well. We're really proud of how it turned out and I'd love for you to take a look at it. The name of the documentary is After Prison, Responding with Faith, and it tells the stories of three ministries here in Chicago that are working with folks when they get out of jail or prison here in the city, offering them dignity, opportunity, support, and hope. As I mentioned before, working on the documentary took up a huge amount of our production time, much more than anticipated, and it delayed production of new episodes of Things Not Seen. Thank you again for your patience. It's my hope that now, as we continue to produce both the new audio and new documentaries, the production schedule will get to be a bit more manageable and regular. Regular would certainly be nice. But today, we have a great new show, and I hope you'll agree that it's been worth the wait. And with that, let's get started. From the studios of WBEZ in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we are part one of our interview with Imam Faisal abdul Rauf, an internationally known figure in Muslim relations with the West. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggon reviews Mark Sundin's book, The Man Who Quit Money. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul-Raouf. Imam Rauf is the founder of Cordoba Initiative, an independent, multi-faith, and multinational project that works with state and non-state actors to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West. From 1983 to 2009, he served as Imam of Masjid al-Farah, a mosque in New York City. In 1997, he founded the American Society for Muslim Advancement, or ASMA, the first Muslim organization committed to building bridges between Muslims and the American public by elevating the discourse on Islam through educational research, interfaith collaboration, culture, and the arts. Imam Rauf is a trustee of the Islamic Center of New York and is a vice chair on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York. He was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010 by Foreign Policy Magazine, And in April 2011, Time magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in the world. Imam Raouf, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you, David.
0: There are many strands of Islam. And so when we start out by saying that you are an imam in the Sufi Muslim tradition, what should this mean to our listeners?
1: Well, first of all, let me take issue with that. I mean, uh, Muslims would disagree with the fact that there are many strands of Islam. From a, a creedal point of view, uh, Islam is very specific in terms of what we call the five pillars of faith and the five articles of creed. So if there isn't any room for any difference on those issues, all Muslims, whether they you call them Shia or Sunni, whether they are of the Sufi tradition or otherwise, uh, share these same principles, which are namely the belief in God, the one God, uh, belief in the angels, believe in belief in the prophets, belief in the scriptures, and belief in human responsibility, uh, which we shall be held responsible for on a day of judgment or a day of accounting. Uh, and then the five items of worship, the declaration of faith, that God is one and that Muhammad is his final prophet. Uh, then the the, uh, the five-time daily prayers, the, the uh, fasting of the month of Ramadan, giving of charity and the pilgrimage. So Muslims all over the world uh, share these creed and and, uh, acts of worship, so on that we're all united. Uh, Having said that, there have been uh, issues or differences of opinion uh, between different groups of Muslims on certain issues, some of which are of a political nature, such as who should be the successor to the Prophet in terms of ruling the community, Uh, and that is where the sunni shia split uh, occurred. Uh, The the, the Sufi tradition is that tradition which uh, emphasizes spirituality and what you might call in Western faith traditions the mystical path, and that is the attempt to actually uh, help the individual come to a personal experience of the divine, and that's what the Sufi tradition is about.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, um, I started out with sort of a, an er- erroneous premise, and that is that, that there were sort of multiple interpretations of Islam. And, and so you have told me that there's unity around these, these five central pillars. But, yeah. but given that there's no room for difference around the five central pillars, the emphasis that we can take about Sufism is that it, it's, the, it's the sort of more mystical and spiritual strand of Islam. Have I heard you correctly? Okay, now, would you characterize this this mystical tradition as a majority tradition within Islam, or what is the relationship between this mystical tradition and and you mentioned Sunni and Shia also as as uh, types of traditions?
1: well as the Sunni Shia split really is a political split mm. uh, it began that way, and while people consider themselves Sunni or Shia, it developed into some slight differences of in terms of uh, Juristic interpretation, which is, has existed even within the Sunni tradition, uh, different scholars uh, gave some different interpretations to relatively minor issues, uh, like you know whether you put your hands on the side or when you pray or you cross them over your uh, you know over your chest. Um, very minor issues of uh, differences in, in detail of acts of worship. The uh, the Shia, for example, break their fast about 20 minutes later than we do the Sunnis uh, in the, the ending of the fast of Ramadan. But apart from minor differences like that, uh, the, these are the, I mean, by, by more, more we, we share one Quran, we share one creed, we share one set of acts of worship, uh, and the, uh, the differences were more historical, which have continued in terms of sectarian differences. Uh, but uh, from a purely religious point of view, the differences are not as as the role of the clergy and so forth. Uh, We don't have clergy in Islam, so we don't have that particular issue. Uh, But the spiritual point of view is something which exists across the board. There are Sunnis and Shias who are Sufis, and Sufism is um, a little bit analogous, not exactly the same, but analogous to the different, let's say, They may be Catholics, but uh, but you know different uh, different spiritual individuals or different individuals who founded these uh, brotherhoods of faith and community to to focus on deepening their their commitment to faith and commitment to sacrifice and commitment to contributing to the community. So analogously, you have had different charismatic individuals throughout Islamic history who founded such uh, schools of Sufism, as you might call them. All of them, we believe uh, flow from the same tradition, uh, and their, their intent is the same, which is to help people arrive at a personal greater sense of of closeness to God uh, and, um, and they have create their own committees accordingly.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal abdul Rauf. Imam Raouf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. That clarification is very helpful, and I especially appreciate the analogy that you made to the different orders within Catholicism and their different emphases. And so I want to get at this this question of, of unity and multiplicity within Islam from a slightly different direction. And I want to use uh, a, a word that Edward Said came up with, the notion of Orientalism, the notion that uh, Westerners have looked to Islam and to the East as a sort of a monolithic structure, a simple and single adversary or what we might call a big other to the West – it's obviously much more complex than that. But how could how can we as Westerners uh, become more educated to the fact that that there is this multiplicity of cultures and traditions within this unity of Islam?
1: Well, like you just said, if you look at if you look at your own tradition of Christianity, uh, you will see that multiplicity within the unity. Uh, you know, and and you 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 know the differences. You know that if you're if within the Catholic uh, space. You have you have the tradition, you have the Pope, you have the Catholic churches. Then you have the orders, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's the Jesuits, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, etc. Uh, within that particular space, uh, and the same has happened in other, uh, you know, uh, Christian uh, faith traditions as well. Within the Protestant Church and the other churches, you do have uh, monastic orders that uh, that have uh, uh, that have uh, you know. Um, uh, occurred. Uh, and um, so that, that's one way to look at it. And and traditionally, Muslims didn't think of themselves as Muslims. I mean, yeah, we are, we are Muslims, but we didn't look at ourselves that way. It's actually the West that has made us look at ourselves through the prism of Islam and has forced us to actually use that, uh, that name and that nomenclature. In fact, one of the themes that I very often give in my lectures is that until a couple of centuries until let's say hundred and fifty years ago or so, our ancestors didn 't think of themselves as Muslims in the way we think today um, uh, but that's one of the one of the byproducts of uh, of orientalism as uh, as you point out
0: so when you speak and, and say that that's what we now as as Westerners look to and consider Muslims that that's a relatively recent artifact of the last hundred and fifty or two hundred years. How how would a person from that culture have regarded themselves? Would they simply have said, "I'm simply a servant of God," or would they have would they have issued all labels altogether? Or, I, I guess I come from a from a tradition and a history and a culture where labeling is so important that I kind of want to to find out more about about this this existence beyond the label of Muslim that you mentioned.
1: Well, let, let me give you a, a, a couple of friends. a friend of mine who is a uh, who is Indonesian say, you know, we're Muslims. But you know, we're Muslims, we practice our faith of Islam, but we don't we don't think of ourselves as Muslims. We think of ourselves as oh Javanese or you know, from Sumatra or from Bali or from whatever and we happen to be Muslim. But we don't, you know, for example, like let's say um many Americans are Christians, but do you do you consider it part of your fundamental identity? Do you say I'm a Christian or do people think of themselves as I'm a New Yorker? I'm from Texas, uh, you know, yeah, they may go to church and all, but is it part of their label that they used to label themselves as? You know what I mean? I
0: do. That's very helpful because I think – when we and, and later in the conversation I'd like to talk about the distinctions that you and others are making between a sort of radical fundamentalist sects within all of these traditions and the more mainline or moderate sects. And I think part of that comes down to exactly what you're saying. The people the people that now do seem to identify strongly as I'm not just from Texas, but I'm a Christian from Texas. I'm not just uh, from Kabul, but I'm a Muslim from Kabul. Um, that seems to maybe be a, a way into understanding this distinction, and we we can talk about it now, or we can we can wait and, and bring it in in the conversation. But this distinction that you and others have made between, I guess, what we might call moderate Christianity, moderate Islam, and radical Christianity, radical Islam, the the radical faiths.
1: Yeah, but I I was talking about the issue of identity. Identity is something which we we. Uh... Or labelling is something which we play an active role in shaping. I mean, for example, when you say, uh, you know, when you if I were to ask you David, you know, who are you or what are you, you say, well, I'm a radio interviewer, or some says, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor. I mean, that that self-definition ha- it comes about from something that you do, but not everything that you do. I mean, we all drive, but we don't think of ourselves as drivers. Mm okay that's not part of our self identity Uh, we we cook but we don't think of ourselves as cooks (laughs) okay what I'm saying is that we do we do things that that we do them and we enjoy and they're very important in our lives but we don't make it part of our identity necessarily so the label that we choose to define ourselves by is an act of of it's a it's a it's a it's a chosen act it's something that you that you do Individually and also collectively. So, for example, the, the the other example I give to people within my tradition is that at the time of the prophet, people did not label themselves as Muslims. They labeled themselves as believers. The Quran addresses them as believers, and in you know the, every command that God makes in the Quran to the followers of the prophet says, "Oh, you have believed. Oh, prophet, tell the believers." And even after the death of the prophet, the first uh, caliphs were called commanders of the believers or of the faithful. Um, it, is, it wasn't until later that, that, that they began to label themselves as Muslims. Yes, they were Muslims, but they didn't label themselves as as such. So today, for example, when I tell people from in our tradition, I said, are you believers? They said, of course we're believers. But you don't think, you don't label yourselves as believers. You don't say we are mu'minun. We say we are Muslim, not mu'min. So the, the label is is, is, the, is what I'm talking about right now. And, and that doesn't mean that you don't do or don't practice that, but you don't use that as your label or what do you use as your label. But having said that, the choice of labeling actually plays a role on how you see yourself.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul-Rauf. Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. Well, let's stay for a moment with this notion of the label, because if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds as if the ability to pick up and choose a particular label is partly a communal act. It's partly an individual act. But in the process of making that choice about what labels will be the kind of main identifiers of our personality, that can shape then uh, sort of the the way in which we're both perceived by ourselves and perceived by the world. I want to make sure that I'm hearing that correctly.
1: Absolutely, and these things have shifted and they've had profound impact.
0: And in what in what way has that shift have you seen that shift occurring, say either in the in the last fifty years or maybe even the last ten years uh, since two thousand since two thousand one?
1: Well, um, I, I think I, I I trace it a bit a bit longer than mm. that. I mean, the, the the focus on defining ourselves as as Muslims and creating Islamic states and Islamic movements. Um, you know the idea of uh, uh having an Islamic state in political parties and I have the Islamic Republic of Iran or Afghanistan or whatever these are these are ways of labeling that that are relatively recent in our history, and the notion that this is something which harkens back to the deepest core of our tradition is a myth. Mm. And, and this comes to many people both as a surprise and to many people as a relief. Because among those who feel that, you know, oh, we have to have, have an Islamic state or live in an Islamic state, it becomes for them an article of faith. And then based upon that, you say, well, if you don't live in an Islamic state, you're not living the ideal life of a Muslim or as a believer. And that can create all kinds of stresses in individuals. Which again are, are stresses which are unfounded because they are based upon a myth. Uh, but these are the problems we're dealing with at the moment. Take take Egypt for example, where you have almost 30 percent of the population that believes in Islamic political parties, you know, um, uh, at odds with with uh, with uh, the rest of society, which believes that religion shouldn't play a role.
0: So if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly. This notion of an identity which is necessary and must go down to the core of who we are—it's a—it's a relatively recent notion. It's a politicized notion, and I, I dare say that if we look at the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition, we can find cognates to this. Uh, it doesn't just happen in Islam, but we can find it—you know—in the Christian tradition in the in the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, people proclaiming, "I am Lutheran" or "I am Calvinist." Uh, we can find it in the the Jewish tradition. I'm I'm Orthodox or I'm Reformed, and and it's it's the holding on to these labels that then and I love love your word myth there because I think that's a very layered word that we could use. It becomes part of not an actual history but a, a sort of a a mythic history that that these groups then look back to for legitimacy and identity. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: Correct. Correct. You see, I, I, I believe that God wants us to focus on the substance of faith and not on the labels of faith, because the labels have divided
0: us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Rauf is an American Sufi Imam, author, activist, and public intellectual. He has written three books on Islam and its place in contemporary Western society, including What's Right with Islam is What's Right with America, and he's founded 2 nonprofit organizations whose stated missions are to enhance the discourse on Islam and society. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Raouf is an American Sufi imam, author, activist, and public intellectual. He's written three books on Islam and its place in contemporary Western society, including What's Right with Islam is What's Right with America, and he has founded 2 nonprofit organizations whose stated missions are to enhance the discourse on Islam in society. And so, if we were to speak then of, of what you consider to be the substance of faith, can this, this may be too big a question? Can you concretize that a little bit for our listeners? What what to you is the is the key substance of faith?
1: The key substance of faith is the content of your faith, your your belief in God, your belief in you know the uh, the, the the nature of the cosmos, uh, the your belief that uh, that we are created by God as responsible human beings are responsible to the creator for both our faith in him and our adoration of the creator as well as discharging our responsibilities to uh, to creation both to other fellow human beings and to the rest of creation the animal kingdom to be you know to be good stewards of the earth uh, to love God and love neighbor this is the content of faith and God has made this particular set of commandments identical to all of his prophets and messengers, so all of the prophets are really part of one tradition, the divine tradition, the belief in God tradition. But to to divide ourselves amongst ourselves, I mean, look, I mean, Christians and Jews, for example, both recognize the Old and, Old Testament as 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 shed, and all of the prophets are their prophets. Can you can you say Daniel was a Jewish prophet or a Christian prophet?
0: I see what you mean, and so, and this may tie into what you were saying earlier about about Sufism being a sort of a, a mystical a mystical uh, resource that that is available. It, it seems like what you're saying is that there is a a common thread that we can find in all of these major traditions, whether we're talking about Muslim or or Jewish or. Or Christian, and I, I'm betting that probably you would say these go beyond the Abrahamic traditions to include uh, probably also the Buddha and Sikhism and, and other sorts as well. That what we find there are these common nuggets of wisdom about, as you said, care for creation, care for each right. other, and and right. and for you, that's that's really the touchstone, the the content of faith that we should be focusing on, not the labels that divide us. Have I heard you correctly?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the Quran is, it says just that, that just that. It says that God says that He has sent a prophet to every community, all over the world, and the message is the same. And therefore, he, he, we we tend to think of we tend to think of you know our separate religions as I used to I call it like you know somewhat not humorously intended to be that way, but. As Muhammad Inc and Jesus Inc and Moses Inc and Buddha Inc, it's really about God Inc with all Muhammad and Jesus and Moses and Buddha as regional managers, or managers in space or in time of the same message, of the same one religion, the same tr- the same religion with a small R or capital R and 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 I mean Jesus didn't come to to start a separate religion. He basically reiterated the commandments of, of Moses, uh, and and he saw himself, and even his followers, his companions, saw themselves as part of the same tradition. It wasn't until later on, you know, Paul, St. Paul broke off and made it a separate religious tradition.
0: So I'm hearing very clearly in what you're saying that for you the key content of faith is is a is a very general set of claims. Um claims about creation, claims about the the nature of the human being, claims about how we should treat one another and that these are the sort of god incorporated and then we have the the kind of regional managers in in your model. But religion also has a very important place for particularity, the distinct differences between uh, various types of Protestantism, the, very, the distinctions between uh, Sunni and Shia Islam. You mentioned the difference between, you know, the twenty minutes of breaking the fast at Ramadan in the evening. Is there a place for these particularities, or, or would you would you call us to dispense with these particularities altogether?
1: I, I think there is a place for these particularities because people interpret certain commandments different. It's like staying in in the United States. Um, you know, when you have a contract, say this contract will will uh, be guided by the laws of New York or by the laws of uh, California. And now it doesn't mean that you know American. I mean, New York law and California law are fundamentally at odds. Uh, it, they're all constitutional. They're all part of the same you know U.S. law. But but there's a recognition within the interpretation of law. That there can be variations even within a particular, within a one particular law, and that's exactly what has happened. There have been variations, you know, in time and and in in place, uh, because of the specifics uh, of those of those differences of time and place, and 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 uh, that that's perfectly all right, but that doesn't take away from the the uh, the issues of justice which are universal. Uh, the issues of equality, which are universal. Uh, so the, the, the big picture issues are still the same. And the objectives are still the same. So the objective of the fast is still the same. So whether you fast 20 minutes longer or 20 minutes less, it doesn't change from the the spiritual uh, attainment of the spiritual objective you're trying to achieve through the, the act of fasting.
0: Well, Imam Rauf, I have learned a great deal from our conversation today, and I, I thank you very much for being with us.
1: Oh, that's the nicest thing that anyone can tell me. Thank you so much, David.
0: Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul-Raouf. Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part one of our interview with Imam Raouf. You'll be able to hear part two next week. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at DaltRadio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug, if you haven't yet discovered our daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website, so even if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore all of them, just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scrogan discusses Mark Sundine's recent book, The Man Who Quit Money. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Many religious traditions explore the idea of asceticism, renouncing material comfort and earthly possessions. Furthermore, during the Enlightenment, many philosophers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau theorized that human beings were actually hindered by participation in civilization and that a true humanity could be found only by renouncing society and going back to nature. America has romanticized such movements in its history, most notably with the pride of place we give to Henry David Thoreau and his sojourn at Walden Pond. It's within this rich history that Mark Sundin's recent book, The Man Who Quit Money, finds its place. Katie Scroggin offers this review.
2: Multiple religious traditions include, if not wholesale, encouragement to adopt simple living or even poverty, subsets of revered holy men and women who have given up worldly possessions in order to pursue greater spiritual achievement. Although such callings have always been difficult to pursue, The realities of contemporary life, especially in the United States, would seem to make it even more challenging, if not impossible, to fulfill the demands of such a vocation in a place permeated by global capitalism and the entanglements and compromises that go along with it. But in The Man Who Quit Money, author Mark Sundin examines one contemporary spiritual seeker who has successfully and joyfully been living off of almost every grid there is since the beginning of the 21st century— Neither spending, saving, nor even coming into contact with money during that time. Sundine traces the path of Daniel Suelo, whose lifelong spiritual and religious commitments led to the decision to drop out of what the latter calls the money system. Growing up in a deeply religious family of Plymouth brethren, Suelo's parents' and church's literal interpretation of biblical scriptures meant that he was raised with both a different conception of time and with different forms of behavior and interaction than were most contemporary Americans. Very simply, his church and family were of the opinion that the sacrifices and choices made by biblical figures were the same ones they were still expected to make. And so it wasn't unusual, for example, for Suelo's father to quit a job because he couldn't support the principles involved in the work, even for money. Suelo took his faith seriously, asking questions that led him beyond the bounds of his conservative faith and into an exploration of other traditions. The journey would lead him to work with the Peace Corps, to study in a Buddhist monastery in Thailand, and to meet with sadhus or spiritual ascetics in India. It was only during his time in Asia, after listening to the Dalai Lama speak, that Swelo realized his searches were leading him back to his own Christian tradition, even if that return didn't involve going back to his family's interpretation of it. Additionally, his involvement with the Peace Corps, with other social service work, and with political activism would also come to make him feel disheartened about the ability of institutional charities and programs to make much of a lasting and positive impact on the world. What seemed to Swallow to be the uninspired and uninspiring nature of institutional endeavors, especially their funding by compulsory taxation and their often senseless strictures, was also part of what made him begin to question the value of political involvement in general. He was well on his way, then, toward shedding the trappings of a society based on the money system— when he wrote in a 1997 letter that anything motivated by money is tainted, containing the seeds of destruction. There is no honest profession. But Suelo's criticism of politics and institutional charity never indicated a desire to withdraw or to stop working for a better world. On the contrary, Suelo's departure from the money system and his consequent move to a cave in Utah only heightened his stress on how very interconnected and, quote, necessarily social living beings are. In fact, Suelo abandoned his sojourn in Asia, because, as he says, what good would it do for me to be a sadhu in India? A real test of faith would be to go back to one of the most materialistic, money-worshipping countries on earth and be a sadhu there. For Suelo, this asceticism necessarily entails interaction with the world, as evidenced not only by his hosting anyone who wants to learn from him. His involvement is also apparent in his blog, written on public library computers, in the relationships he maintains through his writing, and in his volunteer work with and involvement in free meal programs and community gardening initiatives. Even so, Suelo's form of outreach isn't without its critics. His blog essentially exists thanks to taxes. Much of his food comes from restaurant and grocery dumpsters, and many of his clothes are thrift store throwaways. Detractors have pointed out that his self-maintenance is a form of mooching off those who have spent their money on the things he uses— Suelo responds to the argument about food and clothing by pointing out that his scavenging cuts down on waste destined for the landfill, and understanding that his library usage is tantamount to using taxes others have paid almost caused him to give up his blog until he recognized the impossibility of, quote, achieving absolute purity, which would involve, for example, declining to use taxpayer-funded roads. For Suelo, the emphasis is on, quote, giving freely and accepting that which is freely given by others, The money system not only disallows such a practice, it also essentially outlaws applying Jesus' teachings. And so part of Suelo's acceptance of being a sadhu in his own country, and within his own tradition, involves pointing out the inconsistencies of professed Christians' lifestyles, acting, as he says, as a missionary to the Christians, because they don't believe their own religion. As for the book itself, one of its merits as a book is the support Sandin demonstrates for his subject, while avoiding both unbridled celebration and the quiet sarcasm that may come from profiling uniquely earnest and dedicated people. By including analyses of the emotions Suelo's friendship has sparked in him, the author moves past simple exclamations of the difficulties involved in adopting Suelo's lifestyle, and offers the reader a safe place to feel both awe at the man's existence and to admit to one's own discomfort with, and maybe even indignation at, what one is reading. As Sundine remarks about his first sight of Suelo's teeth, I should not be forced to look at such a sorry mouth. The sight made me ashamed, as if he had accused me directly. My shame made me mad. How dare he sit in judgment of me? It's the mark of a good author, and person, that Sundine cares enough to go deeply into something that elicits such discomfort, that he allows what he finds to transform that disquiet into understanding and that he refrains from crusading for or imitatively adopting this lifestyle as his own, out of an effort to appear noble to himself or to others. Swelo and Sandine do call us to recognize our role, not only in environmental destruction, materialism, and waste, but also in the failure to live up to our own dignity and to treat each other and the world with that same respect. But it's a call replete with compassion and with understanding of the real challenges of living outside the status quo, a call which, if we take it seriously, might also result in our own more mindful approach to the ways of the world.
0: Katie Scroggin is an independent translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed The Man Who Quit Money by Mark Sundin. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Studio 7 at their Navy Pier Studios here in Chicago. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop our theme music is composed by Gene Kija, Mary Gaffney engineered the show and the show was edited by Kim Tron our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer you can follow us on Twitter at Radio visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests that's at facebook.com slash things not seen radio and you can sign up for the free podcast listen to old shows send us an email and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at things not seen radio.com I'm David Dalt and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith please join us Thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation.
1: David, I really enjoyed it. You're a very sweet human being. I, I, I really love you.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say.
1: Thank you so much, David. God bless you. Thank
0: you. God bless you as well. Have a good day.
1: Thanks. Same to you now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.